This is the Danger Close Podcast, Beyond the Books, with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Sig Sauer. My guest today is my friend, Eli Crane. Eli is a former Navy SEAL who is the CEO of Bottle Breacher. So you may have seen him on Shark Tank a few years back. An amazing episode. You can find it on YouTube. Highly recommend you check it out. And if you've followed me for a while or listened to a few of these podcasts, you know that I love it when people get out of the military, get out of law enforcement, intelligence services, uh, or from doing being firefighters and move on to that next chapter in life and find that next passion. And uh, in Eli's case, he has grown this business. He is a passionate entrepreneur and he's taken those lessons from the SEAL teams, from his military service, and built on them going forward. So whether it's uh, it's Rob Smith at Resco Watches right here, or Andrew Arabito right here with these half-face blades, or Eli Crane with Bottle Breacher. Uh, and you can see those right here. This one, and we talk about it, is the first one that was given to me back in the Philippines in, I think, 2009. And uh, then Eli took this idea and ran with it and makes a whole bunch of things other than 50 cal bottle breachers. But if you don't have a 50 cal bottle breacher, I'm not sure we can be friends. So you can follow Eli on Eli, E-L-I, C-R-A-N-E, Eli Crane, underscore, CEO, that's his personal, or Bottle Breacher on the social channels. And of course, you need one of these, a Freedom Frag. Oh yeah, get some, but it also opens your beer or your soda. So without further ado, let's jump into it. Eli Crane. Eli, thank you so much for jumping on the podcast. Loving the shirt. Um, Speaking of, we're going to be it's going to be after this podcast airs, but in like two days, we're going to be in the mountains of Wyoming running around in the first ever SIG Hunter Games. Is that, uh, and people keep thinking it's Hunger Games because it sounds very right. similar to Hunger Games. <laughs> Are you, what's up with that? I don't even, I didn't even look into it until they sent the information. Well, they sent the information a while back, but I didn't actually open it until a couple yep. days ago. And it looks a lot more serious than I, than I initially anticipated. I know you and I were supposed to be on the same shooting team, dude. Um, but then they needed somebody to, uh, MC the event. So I'm going to be doing that. But, um, yeah, dude, I think, I think Tom and the gang at SIG realized that if they put two seal snipers on the same team, I mean, we'd be guaranteed a victory. So I don't think they thought they to everybody. Else. I'm going to go with that. I'm definitely going to go with that because, uh, uh, I'm, I'm a little bit concerned about my level of fitness these days, having done a lot more typing over the last three years and I've been doing working out. Uh, yeah. so uh, I looked at the weather report and it's supposed to be like, today is perfect. It's like 63 degrees here. And the event is about 45 minutes down the road from where I am here in park city. But, uh, over the next, I think it starts Saturday. Um, the, uh, the weather's supposed to hop up into the nineties. So yeah. we'll be over 8,000 feet temperatures in the nineties. And, uh, yeah, running, running through the mountains, apparently on a, on a timed course there, it's a competition. I didn't really get the competition part of it, uh, at yeah. the outset when they first uh, said, I thought it was going to be like a gentleman's thing. You're like, you're in the quads, <laughs> you drive up to a couple positions, take a few shots, take a few pictures, you know, right. have a barbecue, call it a day, but no, it's serious. People are getting really into it. Uh-huh. Yep. It's going to be pretty, uh, pretty awesome. Yeah, no, it should be good. I, so I got on the gun last, I think it's been a while. It's been, uh, since October, November 
of last year when I went out to Thunder Ranch to do a uh, counter sniper course out there yeah. just to keep the keep the skills up. And I, I try to get out to FTW Ranch in Texas also every uh, every now and again, get out there. They do a hunting course, which is like a long range shooting course that they've really refined over the years, having seen so many different scope rifle reticle ammo combinations so it's pretty cool when you get out there these days anyway with someone whose only job in the world is to do that sort of thing so I, yeah that's gonna be crazy three jack um i actually uh sent myself well i put in a request to send myself to ftw and uh i was the only guy from our task unit that got to go but uh it was um it was pretty awesome man i had a blast out there met some great great guys and, uh, got some good training before deployment. Nice. That way, what year was that? That would have been my very last pump. So that would have been in 2009. Cause I was, nice. I was lead sniper for Delta platoon and we didn't get on the gun a lot during that workup. So I wrote basically an email stating, Hey, some of our training got cut due to this, that, or the other thing, scheduling stuff. And I said, you know, if, if we have to utilize these skills, you know, as you know, like that's a perishable skill. If you're not on the gun, if you're not working on it, you know, you're not going to be ready. And so they agreed to, you know, uh, fund, fund the trip. And it was wild, man. Cause I showed up to the airport with like four guns, like all this, all this, uh, you know, night vision, you know, lasers, thermals, dude, I had so much crap that like, I needed like two big old carts to carry it. And you should have seen the TSA guys going through my stuff. They were like, who is this dude? <laughs> it was hilarious. awesome. Yeah. I love that. I remember that back in the day also, I think it was at team two and I had to fly through San Francisco for something. And I had the, you know, the box, the Pelican case locked, of course, but it had the nods in there, like two different types of nods in there. It had the, uh, you know, 10 and a half inch upper with the suppressor with all the laser, like all that stuff. And in San Francisco, yeah. they're not usually used to seeing that sort of thing. So I distinctly remember passing through in about 2003, maybe time frame, And they're like, yeah. what on earth is this? Like everything in here is so illegal in California. Right. And I remember <laughs> into it with the TSA agents because you know how they made us put those, uh, or were they the serialized locks on the serialized? Um, mm -hmm. They were uh, yeah, those little metal bands, whatever those things are called. Metal yeah, and and so they were like, "Oh, we got to cut these." And I'm like, "No, you don't." I said, "I'm flying on orders right here." I said, "You can look at them once, but after that, I'm I'm putting these back on, and then nobody's tampering with it." So we got into a little tiff about it, but at the end of the day, I think they uh, you know found the right supervisor and let me fly through without giving me more of a more of a hassle. I remember carrying a, like a handful of those, those serialized tags with me. So if we had to cut, then I could just put some new on, make a little, little yeah. note and make it, uh, you know, semi, uh, legal, I guess. But, uh, oh man. Yeah. That's awesome. FTW. Awesome place. Love getting out there. I think I'm going to try to get out there, uh, over this near the end of the summer, maybe because every time I go there, I learned because so, they're that's all they're doing all day, every day. And they're seeing so many different scope reticle combinations come through there and they're seeing, Hey, what, what, like, uh, 300 PRC. I think the first time I heard about it was out there and, uh, right. and they, so just seeing what's new, what's working, what they're seeing work, what's not working, you know, what they're, how they're adapting all that stuff. And then I get to take that and incorporate it into the novel. So it's uh it's a great place to go for, for me, not just for training, but to get those, uh, get some ideas from the people that are working there. Uh, cause they see so much stuff come pass through that place. Absolutely. 
That's awesome. 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 Yeah. Dude, I want to go back with you for a little bit. So for people that don't know uh, who you are, uh, Eli Crane, bottle breacher, um, they may have seen you on Shark Tank. That's where I think a lot of people were uh, introduced to, to you because you did set, it was such a great episode, you know, and you, you guys crushed it on there. Um, but going back even before that, when, uh, when did you find out about the SEAL teams and when did you decide that that was your path? Yeah, I decided, um, I decided I wanted to try out for the SEAL teams, um, as a young man, probably about 19 years old. I was, uh, I knew I wanted to join the military and I was, I was, I spent a lot of time in Barnes and Noble, you know, just reading literature about recon, special forces, um, SEAL teams. Um, and it, that, that really just, uh, appealed to me. And I was raised in a home where my parents taught me and my brothers that, you know, I know it's cliche, but they taught us that freedom isn't free. Um, these men and women, you, you guys see walking around in uniforms, they're the ones that provide that security and the opportunity for us to, um, enjoy the freedoms we have here. And so, um, as I got older, I thought, God, that's really cool. These, these, these individuals, you know, they, they're, their lives and their career is, you know, it's, you know, it's bent and it's focused on something that's much bigger than themselves. And I always really liked that. And so as I started doing research on what might be a good spot for me, um, I coupled what I was reading with some advice that my dad gave me in, you know, high school. And he said, Eli, one of the tricks to being happy in your career is to pick something in life that you would do for free. And as I started reading, you know, all these special forces books, and, you know, blowing stuff up, you know, going after bad guys, um, diving, you know, jumping, um, you know, it, 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 those things started really coming together. And then, you know, the, one of the key pieces was, you know, the, the literature I was reading from several sources said that the Navy SEAL training was the toughest training in the DOD. And I just really wanted to really wanted to test myself in that way. Um, and, uh, as I learned later on in life, one of the biggest questions that, you know, every man has is, do I have what it takes? You know, do I have what it takes to be a father, a, a, excuse me, a husband, you know, a Navy SEAL, et cetera. And so I wanted to find out if I actually did. And, uh, I found out the first time that I went through training that the answer was unfortunately no. And so I, you know, I failed the first time that I went through training, uh, Bud's class 242. I made it through whole week the first time. Uh, was performance dropped a week and a half later. And then thankfully I got an opportunity to come back in in a couple of years and class back up with Bud's class two, five, six. I made it, made it through that time. And then I went to SEAL team three. No kidding. So what did, um, well, before I ask you what, uh, what you did in those, those two years where you were, while you were waiting to, to come back. Um, I think that that self-selection, even before the program starts, just by knowing that or hearing that, hey, this is some of the toughest training ever devised by a modern military, and in all, in most of that same literature that that I read, uh, that was it. That was like, hey, this is the toughest thing you can do. If you were to ask that right. question, you know, brought more broadly, hey, what's one of the toughest things you can you can do to test yourself? Uh, right. Like with that that literature, if you did that research and you dug deep, that pretty much buds was going to be the answer. It was going to be that that program that filtered to the top, and uh, so I think it self selects people right away because some are like maybe, maybe not. Maybe the toughest thing isn't for me. Maybe the next couple down might be, I'll, I'll start there or, uh, you know, so I think it, it's, it's awesome to have that self-selection before it even starts. And then of course, there's another bunch of hoops you have to jump through just to get to buds. And then when you get there, of course, it's a whole, whole different story. But, um, so when you, uh, when you were waiting to class back up again, um, what did, what did you do in the meantime? Where did they, where did they send you? 
Right. So I think it was important. Um, you know, that, that was a real interesting time in my life. And I think a lot of, a lot of people go through, you know, turning points like that, where, um, you know, you can go so many different ways and I'll be honest and admit that as I can't, as I was leaving the program, you know, I had this like, um, um, kind of, a you know, a victim mentality, like that wasn't fair. I didn't deserve that. I, i made it through hell week. I should, they should have rolled me back because they rolled like me and my roommate both went to an academic review board. Um, we both felt life-saving. Um, I felt it three times and then they sent me to an academic review board. I'd never been rolled, just made it through hell week. And they were like, look, young man, they're like, they looked at my record. They're like, you're tough. Um, but you failed to swim, you failed to run, and you failed an obstacle course. And probably more importantly than any of those things, you're ranked in the bottom 25% of your peer evals. And as you and I know, that that's a big deal. And so they're like, hey, we're looking for the best of the best here. And you're clearly just not it. You know, so they're like, we recommend you come back, um, you know, in, in a year. Fortunately, it took me two and a half years. But like I said, as I, as I left there, I was like, this, this sucks, man. That's not fair, man. They should have rolled me back, given me a chance to, you know, work on some, some issues. And, but at the end of the day, I'm grateful for it because, um, I learned a, you know, a tough lesson that my parents had tried to teach me. And I, you know, I thought I knew, but, um, life is tough and you don't always get what you want. And, you know, when, when things don't work out instead of, uh, trying to deflect and blame other people, maybe that blame should, you know, fall on, should have fallen on my shoulders because I didn't do enough. I didn't prepare enough. And, and more importantly, when, when things got tough, instead of, uh, um, focusing on my brothers and the guys that I was supposed to be, um, you know, focused on and trying to help out, I was more focused on my own comfort and my own survivability. And so, um, that was a wonderful lesson. It took me about a year to, you know, figure it out, quit blaming others, blame myself. And then, okay, Eli, what are, what are the deficiencies? All right. You need to get stronger. Um, you need to get faster. You need to be able to do, you know, more pull-ups, push-ups, all, all of these things. But more importantly, when, when things get down, when things get crazy and chaotic, you need to learn to take your focus off of yourself. And you know, the fact that you're, you're tired and you're hungry and you're hurting and you need to learn to focus that attention on the team. And that was, that's a really hard thing to learn. It's really easy to talk about on a podcast, but you know, when we're all of us, you know, because we're, you know, we're pretty selfish individuals, most of us, you know, and so um, we, we tend to choose uh, being selfish over being selfless. And so that was a hard thing that I had to learn while I was on that ship. I'd look for opportunities you know, when we were exhausted or I was standing watching the middle of the night or, you know, after a long day of work and, you know, you know, several months of that and just be like, okay, how can I put out for the guy next to me? How can I, how can I take the focus off of myself and being selfish in this situation? And that was one of the big things that I started really uh, trying to hone in on. And even, I, I even prayed about it a little bit, man, because, um, I really wanted to be a seal. And I knew that if I, if, if that was going to come to pass that I had to, uh, I had to uh, definitely get my man bones and really figure some things out. Oh man. Yeah. I think I, I don't know where they, I 
discovered this or found out how important it was along, along the journey, but, uh, being able to take accountability, but not just inside, but have articulating it, putting a name like to, uh, to what you you've done or contributed to or whatever, whatever it was. Uh, and then coupling that with forgiveness along, along with it, like that has been so, so powerful. Um, just to be able to put a name to some of those things that, uh, that I need to take accountability for. And then adding that forgiveness, whether it was someone, regardless of whose fault it was, like allows you to just ah, put that bandwidth where it needs to be, uh, to move yep. the ball forward, to move, uh, you, your family relationship, whatever it might be forward. Right. Uh, so I found that to be extremely powerful. Um, and then for you, so what, what did they have you doing on the ship? What was your, what was your rate back then? Yeah, I was a gunner's mate um on the ship and so i i primarily worked in the armory so it was a good spot for me you know continued to you know tinker around and mess with small arms and uh um which would be something that i would later work on in the teams i was never like you know a gun nut but i always found myself in the ordnance department down in the armory i, I later went to nsw armor of course uh it would learn a lot more about our weapons and the SEAL team. So it was just a good spot for me to be in. Did you, what did you deploy during that time frame, and what kind of ship were you on? Yeah, I deployed twice. I was on oh, an Ag Aegis missile cruiser called the USS Gettysburg um, CG-64. And we, 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 the first cruise we did was a Gulf cruise. Um, and I think that was in 2002. And then the final cruise I did was like a uh, North Atlantic cruise. Um, and we did that in, uh, 2004, right before I came back the second time. Got it. And so were you in buds during September 11th or where were you? September no, 11th? I was in college here at the university of Arizona. Um, yeah. it's 11th and, uh, I dropped out the very next week, um, called my parents, told them, you know, Hey, this is, I think this is my time. This is what I need to do. And, um, told, told my teachers, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm going to be leaving and, you know, canceled all my classes. And then, uh, I think my first day in the Navy was the 21st, I want to say. So of September. Um, yeah. I, I went wow, down it was quick. I went down to the recruiter days after September 11th and then I'll obviously started processing my paperwork and, uh, um, you know, went, went to MEPS and, and that whole thing and then got out there as soon as I could. No kidding. So that's what I thought it was going to be like uh, when I went to the recruiter because I'd done all my research. I found out about the dive fair program. It was in the back of a book. Um, gosh, what was that called? It might have been called U.S. Navy SEALs, possibly the Commandos. One of those two books, anyway, had this page in the back, kind of like an author's note that talked about dive fair program. And I was like, ah, oh, what is this? And there was no internet back then when I was coming in a few years before you. So, uh, so I, I'm like, oh, this dive fair thing. My recruiter didn't even know what it was, but I thought I would walk in. I'd sign up, I'd walk out the back door onto a bus, you know, like a 1960 style Vietnam type thing. And then off you go to boot camp. Like I had no idea that you had to get a physical, you had to take these tests, you had to do all these other things. You had to wait in line for your class yeah. to start up, like hold that, that whole thing. So, uh, so I, that was a surprise and an introduction to a bureaucracy, but I guess after September 11th, I mean, yeah. they might've sped up that you could get in there a little bit quicker, but that's amazing. I love that story that you just like next yeah. day, boom, I'm out. And then I'm, I'm going to the SEAL teams. Oh, man, that is awesome. Well, makes sense, you know, from a practical standpoint, if you've already made up your mind that you want to serve the country and then something like September 11th kicks off and you're like, hey, whether I'm in college or or not, I mean, this is the perfect time. Our country needs, you know, young men and women to step up and it's yeah. it's to, to do this. So Amazing. 
And then, so you get your uh, slot back, you're back in that next buds class. And then uh, how was life saving that second time? And for people that don't know, life saving is this thing that I actually love because in buds, there are very few opportunities for you to go hands-on with an instructor. Usually you're getting yelled at, you know, you're getting told you're next to nothing. You're doing push-ups. They're just walking around yelling at you. You are holding a log over your head or the boat over your head. There are very few times where you get to kind of strike back a little bit yep. and get a little, get a little shot in there. Um, yep. so for me, I'd been doing, I'd been boxing into, I was early in jujitsu and all these things. So I was, you know, I was, I was very excited for life-saving and, uh, uh, what they do for those listening is you're in a pool. And I think there are five different stations. Maybe you go yep. to something like that. Um, and each one of the people you have to save in the water is exhibiting some sort of a different type of scenario. They're maybe limp and just floating there. Uh, maybe they're floating like to the bottom, maybe they're combative. Um, there's all, there's these different things and they all have different body types that you have to do this with as well. So in you go, you swim out, they have some gigantic person that you have to like get to the side. Okay, great. Then you go to the next one and he's combative and he's skinny and slippery and getting away. And so they have these different things you have to do. But, uh, for me, I think the jujitsu early on really helped because they would try to take you to the bottom. So, uh, so you have the combative person and they would take you down. And so for me, I would be like, well, oh, okay. This is very comfortable for me. I'm not exerting any energy here, just like jujitsu. You know, you're in some of those positions where the other person is expending all yeah. that energy and you're not. And I was like, oh, this is my time just to ride this out. And this person's going to use up a lot more oxygen because they're struggling and I'm just holding on. And then they're going to have to come up for air. And when they did, then I take a couple more, you know, get towards a couple a little closer while they got their air. And then they start fighting again. And I just, boom, relaxed, have them take me down to the bottom, bounce off the ground and just, just chilling, just relaxing and then keep going. So I love that. That was like the one, that one what else could we do that with? There was like two things in buds where you actually got to maybe go hands-on with the instructor, but that one really stands out to me. Like, oh, uh, pool comp, pool comp. For those listening, you put the tanks on your back, you're crawling across the bottom of the pool. They pounce on you. One or two instructors rip all your dive gear off, hit you in the gut a couple of times. You expend your air, tie your hoses in knots, and you have to go through these procedures to get back and continue to go. And for me, I was like, all right, you and me, buddy, you know, for that instructor, I was fired up for that one. Uh, cause everything else you're kind of just taking it and putting out But those, those two events, life-saving and pool comp. I was like, yes, it's time. Let's go. So I, I love that. But, uh, that was a long way of me asking, how was the next time doing pool comp for you? You know, everything, uh, everything was a lot better that, you know, that next go round. I was just a lot more mature. I still, you know, wasn't, you know, where I, I, you know, wanted, wanted to be or, um, but I had progressed a lot in my maturity and even, you know, physical strength, but, um, it was, it was just so much better. I, I had a lot more confidence. Um, and, uh, like I said, you know, confidence in a situation like that is, it's a, it's a really big deal. I passed it right away and then moved on to, uh, you know, second phase. Nice. Nice. Then you go through buds and then end up at, at team three. Was that your first one? Yeah. Right. Right. To team three. And uh, at this point, war has kicked off. People are, we're, we're, it's force 21 time and uh, and the deployments, these cycles are, are going. So do you hop into a platoon at the beginning of a, a workup cycle or do you hop in midway through or right before deployment or how does that work? Yeah, it was interesting for us. Um, I think it was six of us actually went from BUDS class 256 immediately to Iraq. Um, the only the only inter, intermediate stop was SEER school. We all had to go to SEER school. And that was wild for me, man, because, um, I can't remember what it was, but all the other guys, all the other new guys that went, um, they went to Sears school, the class before I did. So they showed up in Iraq one week before I did, I believe. And, um, 
And so I went through Sears school and then I actually flew to war by myself. That was odd, man. That was so weird. Cause like, you know, fly, you know, fly first year flying commercially. And then, you know, as you get closer and closer, you, you'll hop on a military bird, but I'm sitting there by myself. I don't know anybody and I'm going to war by myself. And it was just the, and I didn't have any guns or anything. I'm like, this, this seems really weird. <laughs> that is like, odd. That's how I showed up um, in country in 2006, ended up getting placed in uh, Bravo platoon under work Denver. Um, and uh, yeah, it was, it was cool, man, because um, the, the learning curve obviously was extremely steep. I think probably steeper than it is now, just um, for the fact that we didn't have not night vision or lasers um, in SQT, SEAL qualification training, mm -hmm. your last block of training before you go over to overseas. And then we get overseas and everybody's using night vision and, you know, lasers for everything. And so it's like the learning curve was extremely steep, trying to figure out the culture and that dynamics of a platoon that's been working together for, you know, at that point, you know, close to two years, right. you're the new guy, you're trying, trying to walk on eggshells, do everything that you can do all the collateral duties that the older guys don't want to do and try not to get anybody killed at the same time. So, um, it was definitely a, a wild experience, but it turned out to be a really good experience for us. That's wild. I guess people don't realize that. Uh, and I didn't even realize at what point SQT seal qualification training, which is six months now after buds that, uh, they started getting some of those, uh, night visions and lasers and the things that we're using downrange. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that's a few years late. That's amazing that it was so, it was so late. My SQT was in 97, I think 97, 98. Um, and, uh, and you know, uh, no one had that stuff back then. Even when we got to the platoon, we had like one, uh, night vision and it was a scope, it was scope. Uh, and it didn't even go in front of another optic. It was just four, you know, and, and I forget the nomenclature for it. And so the point man got that, you know, and everyone yeah. else is just kind of following along at night, like trying not to get lost uh, and trying to look at the person in front of them. Uh, so I distinctly remember that our point man was the only guy that had had nods. And of course, we didn't even have body armor was only for CQC. Uh, so you showed up magically at the door uh, in a flight suit with your body armor on. Uh, and it's amazing that before September, 11th, we didn't even really think about getting to and from target, which is, uh, you know, arguably some of the more dangerous parts of a mission, just getting, getting to and from Dan, you know, uh, that, danger that of flight. <laughs> interesting question, Jack, at what point were you able to outfit your musket with a laser? <laughs> How far along were you? Oh man, that's what, that's awesome, dude. It wasn't even in that first platoon. I mean, not first platoon. It wasn't even in that September 11th platoon because we did missions with white light um, after September 11th. And I don't think we had nods. I'll have to go back in the picture. We didn't even have a, a mount on our helmets for nods. I'll have to go back and look at the photos to confirm. But uh, it was white light at night. And for us, it was ship takedowns in the Northern Arabian Gulf. Uh, took that mission over for Team 3 while well, they hopped over yep. to be some of the first guys into into Afghanistan. But uh, but yeah, I was climbing climbing up on those ships, heading for Iranian waters with uh, white lights. We did have white lights on our uh, on our SIG P226s, uh, mm -hmm. but it was with there was no rail on them, so you had that aftermarket. Not even aftermarket. I think Surefire made it, so I guess that does make it aftermarket. But it fit with the with the Surefire light at the time. 
Um, and yep. it was a plastic rail. I think it was plastic. Um, I still used, I used to have mine until we moved out here and it's become, it, it irks me to no end that I can't find it right now. But, uh, but I said, I kept it for all these years, but, uh, but yeah, so we had the white light there and we had, uh, MP5s with, uh, gosh, I think we had lights on those unless we had to like use our pistol lights as the lights for the MP5. I'm gonna have to go back and look and confirm because it's been a, a while since I've thought through exactly how we did those. But point being, you know, we didn't have all that stuff uh, even even right at, during September 11th in that time for those weeks afterward. It took till the next workup till we came back where we started, that evolution started to happen. The Golden Connex box opened. We started to get those funds and started to be, purchase a lot of those things that would give us that uh, technical advantage over the enemy that we needed. So, uh no, desperately is not the right word, but we, uh, it definitely helped to have everyone outfitted with a suppressor, everybody outfitted with nods, everybody outfitted with that laser, um, and to have trained up with those things. So you can, uh, kind of morph your ta- tactics a little bit. Um, because what we've been doing up to that point, as you know, everything was based on Vietnam era tactics, no matter where you were, we took those tactics from the jungles of Vietnam, from the, from the Mekong Delta, and we dropped those in the mountains. We dropped those in urban environments. We dropped that in the desert. And then after September 11th, found out that, uh, you know, we need to adapt to these environments and not just do what we were doing in the jungles of Vietnam or what our forefathers were doing in the jungles of Vietnam. Um, and now we have some technical means that, uh, they didn't have. So time to start adapting and working these things. But, uh, that's wild. So what did you, what did they have you doing as a new guy? showing up did you jump in the right in the train and get after it or did they make you do no, like stuff they in the were talk? Pretty, they were pretty smart about it as far as uh, it was definitely a crawl walk run approach um you know obviously we were doing a bunch of collateral duties making sure all the vehicles were gassed up um you know cleaning all the you know 50 cows the 240 golfs you know uh pretty regularly learning those weapons really well they put us through some driving courses some turret gunning courses some even some automatic weapons courses some just there right in country just get out there with guys and, and get out yeah. a little bit yeah and then uh the first thing they let us do was turret gun which was great you know we did a lot of turret gunning and then slowly um they started letting us work into uh sniper overwatches and uh patrols like you know patrols as well so it was pretty cool just to uh to even get a part be a part of it because most of the guys from our um sqt class went to the East coast and, you know, um, you know, they were, you know, starting in workups and we were already in war. So that was, you know, that, that, that was pretty cool. Yeah. But it was, like I said, a steep learning curve. Oh man. Where were you for that one? What part of Iraq? Uh, Habania. Okay. Habania and that one. And then, uh, and you come back and then you jump into a platoon. Is that your first full workup then? Yeah. So then I came back and, uh, I think, uh, you know, within a week, I, cause I was on the very last bird coming home. So within a week I was, um, put into a uh, Chris Kyle's platoon. I was, went from Bravo platoon to Delta platoon. Um, and that was a rude awakening. Cause I went from a platoon where the rules were like pretty much the culture was like, Hey man, um, as long as you don't mess up or need any tightening up, we're going to leave you alone. But if, if you need to get tightened up, we'll tighten you up. Um, and then Chris Kyle's platoon was a completely different animal, man. It, <laughs> It was like, you're getting tightened up, uh, three to four times every day, whether you need it or not. So <laughs> totally different culture, but, um, you know, I, it, you know, I, t- I, I try and take every the positive with everything. And I think it ended up, you know, being a, a good thing for me. And where do you go on that deployment? 
Um, that deployment, we were all over the place, man. We started um, on the Syrian border in Al-Qaim. Uh, we turned over with an SF unit out there. Uh, we were living out of a train station. You know, we spent the first month of deployment building a two-story like facility that we'd live out of. We called ourselves Seal Bees for a while, and uh, it was it was pretty cool because you know our, our job in that deployment, one of our jobs was to uh, try and stop the flow of foreign fighters coming in from Syria um, into Iraq, and so we did a lot of desert patrols, got to see a lot of the country, um, you know, doing that. And, um, and then we started going all over the place. We, um, flew up to Missoula, went to Talafar. Um, and then, uh, I, we spent some time in hit Haditha, Al-Assad. Um, and then we went to, um, the, the, the I, I ended my deployment in, uh, Biop, um, work, working out of, uh, and then working out of Sauter city. So that's, that's kind of how I did that deployment. Were you guys rocking uh, the uh, the up armored Humvee things, the gun trucks, or do you have Hiluxes, or what did you guys use out there doing the uh, the desert patrol stuff? Yeah, we were rocking uh, up armored Humvees, um, and then when the guys in Biop or uh, Solder City were rolling the uh, RG thirty threes, those were new at the mm-hmm. time, and those are the up. They look like up armored, um, kind of like land land cruiser land rover they're, they're big awesome machines and uh they have the v-shaped pole so if you get whacked hit by an ied there's a good chance that people inside will survive and the coolest things about ours and this is what distinguished us from everybody else is we had the rws the remote weapon system on top of ours so that's like a remote control 50 cal that you can control from the inside of the vehicle kind of like playing a video game which was nice. And it was really new for those of us that had spent a long time turret gunning, because I mean, as a turret gunner, you're the most exposed guy and you're always, you try not to think about it much, but you know that the number one threat over there is the IED. And you know that if you get hit and you're a turret gunner with an IED, chances of uh, survival or having all of your limbs at the end of the night are not very good. So uh, that was kind of nice to switch from turret gunning outside the vehicle to inside the vehicle. Jeez. And did you have, did, were they still doing, uh, in the streets were hanging like wires across the street, barbed wire across the street, right? Head level, or they're trying to be at head level for, for turret gunners. I seem to remember that from 05, 06, uh, going Ramadi, Fallujah and back along there. Did they, did they have that out there at the time? You Is know, that something you guys thought about? You know, the only things I saw low like that were, um, like telephone lines. I didn't yeah. see any Bob or anything like that, but um, thankfully we had those, uh, we had hip on the top of our 50 cals, those I, big IR spotlights. So you could see a lot of that stuff on nods, um, coming from a ways off. And the turret gunners for those listening, like most of the times that we would stop and, uh, call in EOD for some sort of, a uh, an IED EFP type type thing. It was visual from, from turret gunners up there just being, being aware, looking for things that looked not quite right, which is tough because, everything can be an IED and they're adapting constantly as are we. So it's this constant game of adaptation, especially when we're talking about how to conceal IEDs along a road, a road maybe you've never been on, or if you have been on it, 
man, there's trash everywhere. There's dead donkeys. There's, you know, potholes, there's all sorts of stuff out there. So, um, a lot of that became like intuition and gut and instinct and that sixth sense that's been keeping people alive from the beginning of time. Um, well, those turret gunners, they're the only people out there that are really looking at that because that guy that's next to the driver's navigating, you know, the driver's driving, looking for things, but you're up there in that, in looking for threats and which includes IEDs. So, uh, when you're running that stuff, did you, uh, were you, how, how, what were you do up there? Were you looking, scanning near, far, just looking for things that were out of place? Like, um, yeah. How was that experience? Looking for everything, you know, and that it kind of bothered me too, because, you know, here we are, you know, Navy SEALs in country and our brethren in the army, you know, in, in many ways are flying around a lot, you know, they're flying around in helos and stuff, which aren't as susceptible to IEDs. And, I spent about a year and a half of my life, you know, cruising around, you know, the streets of Iraq, you know, where IEDs are the biggest threat to killing you or maiming you. And I was thinking to myself, man, why doesn't NSW invest in, you know, a, a Hilo squadron for, you know, uh, for this, for the teams? Cause I came from a ship where we had two Hilos on board and, you know, most of the time those Hilos were, you know, either parked inside the ship or they were, their main job seemed to be, you know, um, underway replenishment where they would go get, mail bags from the, the oiler and then bring them over, you know, or stuff like that. And I'm like, man, these, the SEAL teams are, you know, the tip of this fight, you know, it'd be nice to see NSW um, be able to snag some up, but I mean, that is what it is. And, you know, we made the best of it, but I can remember doing one op, a joint op with uh, SF where, you know, we, we, we were going to meet um, in this field outside a village. And then we were going to go all hit the village at the same time. I remember we drove three hours you know, to the village and they flew in on Blackhawk <laughs> in the field. And I'm just thinking to myself, what is wrong with this? Like, why can't we, why can't we get this figured out? But, um, but yeah, you know, just, we did a lot of, you know, a lot of scanning, um, you know, and, and, you know, we, we, we'd also have to, uh, we were, we were the first line of defense against like, you know, V-bids, um, vehicle borne IEDs and vehicles that were getting too close. So we did a lot of throw in crashes, um, mm flashbang grenades at, at vehicles that were not getting out of the way or coming up on our, on our, in, in our rear and just getting too close to us. That was kind of fun, but, um, yeah, <laughs> we did a lot of that. Oh man. So wild. And then, uh, you come back from that one and, uh, do you do another workup or deployment or do you go into training cell? What do you do at that point? Yeah, I came back and thankfully I got to do another workup and then, um, still I, a team three. Yeah. Still a team three Delta platoon. We got 11 new guys. So went from being a new guy to, you know, one of the older guys in the platoon. And, uh, we got a, an amazing crop of new guys. Um, Chuck Keating and Pat Feeks were two of our new guys. Both of them ended up getting killed, but I mean, we just, we had some amazing guys and then we went to Fallujah, uh, in 2010. So. Oh, dang. That's your last one. That was my last appointment. Yeah. Got it. What'd you guys do in Fallujah in 2010? That's, that's surge time or past surge time. Or what are you guys doing? In, uh, what kind of missions yeah, are you guys doing at that point? We were doing a lot of turnover um, with our partner force, the Fallujah SWAT team at that point. Um, we also took on a pretty cool mission. Um, there were, I think there were two um, MIA U.S. soldiers at that point um, in you know, in all around the world. And one of them was suspected to have been his, his remains or him period was, he was suspected to be somewhere around Fallujah. His name was Troy Gilbert. He was F-16 pilot. 
he uh, he was bailing out some uh, SF guys that were in a pretty bad tick, um, and uh, he was shot down. They found a bunch of remains in the cockpit, which they thought was brain matter. So they didn't think that he was probably chances were that he probably wasn't alive. But I remember the briefing that they gave us uh, before we started looking for him, and they had this old crusty SF guy come in that was embedded with us and. He gave us a brief of uh, uh, Major Gilbert and his showed us pictures of his family and his wife. Um, they had five kids. They had two twin girls that were like one year old, both of them when Troy was shot down. And so as a dad, that really uh, pulled on my heartstrings. And it was like, man, we got to find this guy and bring him back, you know, for for his family so they can have that closure. And so we spent a good amount of that deployment going around, digging up grave sites, concrete slabs anything that we thought was a credible lead to try and bring home major gilbert that was a pretty important mission um but also um what happened we did a lot you know thankfully we didn't find him on that appointment but they they found him like two years later in the same areas that we were looking in and so thankfully um his remains were uh, delivered back home and they got a proper burial and his family got to get that closure knowing that you know he's he's home now and so that was cool. Um, and then we also did a lot of, uh, FID with the Fallujah SWAT team. We did some DAs, um, you know, and we weren't allowed to work as, you know, sniper overwatches were outlawed at that point. Um, you know, they were trying to deescalate things and I found that snipers rarely do that. I think that, you know, Oh yeah. We've talked uh, about this before. Yeah. <laughs> crank things up a little bit, but, um, but yeah. And, uh, my job during that deployment, I was the uh, point man. I was the lead lead navigator um, and uh, the lead sniper in our platoon. So that was a great, that, you know, that was a really good deployment for me with an amazing group of guys. And, uh, you know, that's what we were doing. And so when do you decide that uh, it's time to time to move on and and uh, turn that turn the page and, and get out? How does, how does that all evolve? Yeah, I, I pretty much made the decision on that deployment. Um, and I was just like, all right, this is my third, this is my fifth deployment in Navy third in the teams. I've got a young, you know, young daughter. I think she was two and a half at the time. And I was tired of watching her grow up in pictures. Um, and, uh, so I, I, I actually reenlisted on that deployment because I wanted to give myself time to plan the, uh, um, the exit. And so, um, one of my old chiefs told me that if I came and worked for him at the um, NSW recruiting directorate, um, he would let me go to college in the afternoon. So I wanted to finish up my degree. Cause I, like I said, I dropped out of college, um, right after nine 11. So I started taking classes, um, to finish up my degree working for him. And it's, it was an interesting department because, uh, we don't, um, we don't recruit, you don't recruit seals. Like if you have to talk guys into that, they, yeah. they won't stick. So it was more, that's that self-selection uh, part we talked about at the beginning, like right. taking that initiative, right. finding out, Hey, what's the hardest thing I can possibly do to test myself? Oh, SEAL teams. Okay. Uh, that's where I'm going. So you yeah, did. that's interesting. So where, where was this recruiting director? Is that the one that's attached to, uh, in San Diego, right there across the street on Amfoot base? That is it that, that command that does that? Or was it like an it actual is, recruiting station somewhere now. else? Yeah, it is now. It wasn't back then. It was right above the grinder. Okay. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, but the same thing, same right. That's their, their yeah. mission. Okay. Got it. Thank you. The, the leapfrogs are actually out of that same command as well. It's just because you, you raise awareness. Um, and they would, what they did was the Navy did a Gallup survey, I think like 
I don't know, probably like 10 or 15 years ago. And basically they wanted to basically move the needle on ROI. Like if we're going to spend, you know, 30 to $40,000 just to get a young man to buds, um, you know, we, we want to bump the attrition, <clears throat> attrition rate up, or I'm sorry, bring it down to where we actually have more guys who are making through training. And so they did a survey to find out just in, with analytics and data to find out like who was making it through, who wasn't, are there any commonalities? Can we find any, uh, you know, any, any target points or areas that we can spend, do a better job targeting candidates. And what they found is there were seven sports that were doing well in SEAL training. And, um, and obviously the sport I played in high school football wasn't one of them. So <laughs> was it what wrestling, water polo, like what, what it? Hey, Water polo was one. I think swimming was two. Wrestling was three. Then, you know, it went down the line. It was like crew, cross country and a couple others. But we spent most of our time with water polo, swimming and uh, and what was the other one I said? Um, wrestling. Yeah. And so we just to like wrestling camps or water polo tournaments. And we would like um, we would show the kids a video. Uh, we would let we would put them through a seal screen test. And then we would just be like, all right, you know, if, if you guys want more information, we'd give them the sealswick.com website and they could go look for themselves. And, and that was my job for a while. I got to work with the, uh, went to the USOC, the U S Olympic committee, got to work with um, some of their athletes out there. And, uh, as they prepared for the, uh, Beijing Olympics, that was kind of cool. Um, and then, uh, went from that command to my final command, which was, uh, NSW group one trade it. So that was, uh, on the West coast. Those are seals that put seals through training. And I got put in MarOps maritime operations and, uh, I would become the LPO of, uh, BBSS before I got out. So, which is visit board search and seize. Jack was talking about that a second ago, uh, training on how to take down a ship. That's a very dynamic environment. Um, as Jack can tell you. And I mean, there's, you know, threats everywhere. And because ships are so small, they have to, uh, they have to utilize their space better than you would in a house or an apartment. So everything's like a secret compartment and you really have to learn the ins and outs of a ship and then how to take control of it, how to drive it once you've taken control of it, where all the possible booby traps and threats are. And even before all of that, you have to figure out how to get on board the thing, you know? And so, it was a really dynamic environment and I'm grateful that I got to do that job um, primarily um, because it actually, there were so many things out of my control, very few things that I could control. Um, and it really helped me to run a business after I got out because, you know, business is the same way. There's certain things you can control. There's so much that you can't control and you need to have contingency plans um, built into your operation and, and, you know, learn to stay calm and, um, just solve problems. And that's, that's what VBSS is. Yep. No aggressive problem solving. I, I, I think about that both on the business side of the house, which there is in writing, which I didn't realize before I stepped into this realm, I thought you just wrote and then sent your book to New York and that was it. I didn't realize you have to do all the things you'd have to do for, for any business, uh, marketing and advertising, social media, outreach budgets, like everything involved with any business you do as an author, if you want to grow that readership and not rely on someone else to do it for you, who only has a certain amount of assets to allocate and they have to, they have to prioritize. So, um, so you right. get, you have the opportunity 
to build some some things out. But even also on the written page, same thing. I'm aggressively solving problems just like I would in VBSS, just like I would on the battlefield. But uh, but if I screw something up, I can come back and edit it the next day. It's not uh, the consequences aren't nearly as dire as uh, as it is in real life. But uh, but VBSS is interesting because it kind of got. You know, took a took a back seat to everything else that was going on because of Iraq and Afghanistan, and we just wanted to hit targets in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, but it was interesting to have done that mission in real life um, for a deployment. I mean, I wouldn't have chosen it. I would have chosen uh, after September 11th, right into Afghanistan, which is what we thought we were going to do. Instead, we did the shipboardings. But uh, but now I'm grateful for that because it's the only time in my entire time in uniform that I got to do that and to have an enemy that's stringing barbed wire up. So you can't throw a fast rope out of a helicopter. So you're relegated to coming in on the, on the ocean and then to have them choose the time to move out of Iraq into, to try to get to into Iranian waters and to choose the worst weather possible to make it as hard on you as they possibly can. So small boat advisory. Okay. Guess what? That's when they're going. And guess what you're in a small boat as you come up to go take these guys down. And then not right. only do they cut off all the ladders on the, on the boat. So you have to then hook again and uh, continue to use your own ladders. Once you get on board, well, they've soldered doors shut and they've soldered windows with big sheets of metal in place uh, or welded them in place. So, uh, so it's, it's, it's a bunch of, a bunch of problem solving under the clock because you're almost in Iranian waters. So it's kind of, kind of cool to have gotten to do that. And then, uh, you know, then, then getting to Afghanistan shortly, shortly thereafter. But, uh, yeah. Well, because very few, I never got to do that in, in real world. It's very few guys that actually get to do real world BBSS. And so I think it's, uh, I think it turned out to be pretty fortunate and a good opportunity for you. It was pretty cool, especially using MP, we're using MP5s, we're using our, our SIGs. And, uh, a lot of the time, even an MP5, which people know are very small, um, we slung those and we cleared with those pistols because you have to, you have, you're clearing these tiny little places, like you said, and, uh, it just oftentimes, whether it's a Dow or a class three tanker, even class three tankers you're taking down have small spaces and, uh, you transition to that pistol with that light to just, you know, to clear those things and they're huge right. and you only have a platoon. So it's, and you're on the clock. So it's, uh, it's, it's pretty interesting to be able to, to run through those, uh, through an environment like that. And everything's channelized obviously with, uh, with passageways and, uh, in ships, as you know, and, and, uh, so it's, there's some interesting problem solving that takes place in those conditions that uh, are different than, than what you do in a, in a house somewhere or in a, a city street somewhere, that sort of thing. But, uh, but it was good. It was good. And, uh, and it, and also on the, the recruiting side must've been interesting as well, because gosh, we spend, I don't know, untold millions of dollars trying to figure out how to get the right person in the front door of buds so they have a better chance of making it through that back door and into the into the seal teams and what's interesting right. as because i was the opso there for a while on my way out i was also fortunate enough to be able to take a breath and not go right from a deployment leading guys down range to the private sector because there would have been zero time to even think about that transition because you have to be focused on the guys because that's what right. you owe them their families the mission the country but uh, to be able to go to a place like buds where Things are moving like first phase, second phase, third phase. Those guys got it. And as the opso, I had a chance to take a breath for the first time, look around and make some decisions and think about transition. But I did notice how much money we spent trying to find those right people and then see them show up and quit or how much money yep. we spent in that program to try to get people in shape after boot camp where they stay in Great Lakes and they learn how to hold logs over their heads, learn how to climb ropes, get uh, courses on nutrition and leadership and resiliency, and then show up at Buds and then ring the bell. So for me, it's like, bam, that's working because you have to be put through this crucible. It's, we're looking for grit. 
And that's an intangible. So how do you test for grit ahead of time? Well, you know, you can take some educated guesses and see somebody that's been on the mat uh, time and time again, or been in the ring time and time again. They know how to take a punch. They know how to, how to, how to uh, take a beating and keep going forward. Okay. That's probably a good guy, but you never know until they're right. freezing <laughs> you know, on the verge of hypothermia, uh, getting yelled at, thinking about, oh, geez, it's Monday or it's Sunday and I got to go till Friday or, you know, I got to go through second phase after this or, you know, it's all up here. And uh, so that, that part was always very interesting uh, to me and that you're testing for this intangible thing called grit. And we need to put you through the ringer to find out if you have it. No, I agree. That was one of the coolest things, you know, just being a, a thinker and an observer myself. Like I was always blown away at some of the guys that would show up there and you'd look, you'd look to your right and you'd look to your left and you'd be like, oh man, that guy, that guy looks like a Navy SEAL. You know, he's all big and buff and he's got all these cool tattoos and everything. And then, you know, two days later, you, you, he's gone. you're like, <laughs> why did that guy quit? I, I don't know about you, Jack, but I felt like you remember that show back in the day called Highlander, where every time he'd kill a bad guy, like he'd absorb their powers. Oh, yeah. Like every somebody, like every time I heard that bell ring or quit, like I felt like Highlander, like just absorbing their powers. Like, cause I was just like, man, I, you know, I didn't know that I, I would have never guessed it, you know, that I had more, you know, mental toughness than you, but apparently I do. And it would just feel, it would just feel like good. That, like you were still there. You were still hanging in there and, you know, other guys couldn't hack it. And I don't, I don't mean to sound like a, that sounds kind of like a, like, I don't know, kind of like being a dick, but at the same time, it's like, you know, it's like, um, when you've put that much into, you know, being there at that point, and then you're, you're going through the toughest military training in the department of defense. And you're, you know, you're not, you're still there at the end of the day and guys that you thought were probably tougher than you aren't, you know, it starts to build that confidence. You know, and it's, it, it, that's such an important thing when you're there because that confidence, you know, really helps with, you know, mental toughness. So, oh, I, I feel exact same way. I saw people quit that were just, that looked like Navy SEALs, uh, that first couple hours of hell week. And I was like, oh yeah, that's the program work. And I remember they get up out of the surf zone and go ring the bell. And I remember a lot of other people in the class going, come back, don't quit. And I was, I was like, like that's the program working. Like you got up and you're heading towards that bell, continue on uh, and yeah. ring that thing. And I felt the same way. I'm like, ah, this is the program working. That person didn't have it, but exactly right. And that was like, mm. that was, I just distinctly remember that. And, uh, and I loved it because, you know, if everybody stays there, then okay, everybody, <laughs> what, 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 are we, what are we testing for here? Uh, but to see those guys that were, that were strong and motivated and fast, get up and quit like right away. I was like, right. yeah, get it. That's it. So I love that part. But uh, so jumping back in, you're, when do you make the decision to do this? So I, I brought this. So this, if you can see right there, boom, there. This is one, this is a, a 50 cal round that was given to me by an SF guy in the Philippines when I was there in 2009. And uh, they had some of the uh, Filipino Marine guys make it for me. So this is the first time I saw, I think, uh, that I remember seeing anyway, a 50 cal, um, uh, what would become uh, a 50 cal bottle breacher. Um, and I loved it because it was great, you know, from these SF guys, you know, I love the, um, I love that it was a gift from them and it was still cool. So it means so much to me. Uh, and then I, then I see you on shark tank years later 
And uh, so where did, how did all this, uh, this come about? And now you have all sorts of stuff on your site. This is uh this is the grenade right here, the frag, you know, I love this thing. You know, you've been amazing to, to me and, and my family as I've gr- grown this, uh, you know, the, this business as I've, as I've transitioned um, and everything you do is so top notch. If people can see that right there, everything from the, the boxes and the, the packaging uh, to the actual, you know, products, like how did you come up with this, this idea you know, right here for these, and then take that extra, that step to find out how you get on Shark Tank and then make a deal on Shark Tank and yep. then keep moving forward and crushing it. So how, uh, how did that all come about? Yeah, it all came about. Um, I actually got the idea from the same place that you did. Um, my little brother's a, he is a Marine helicopter pilot. He went to the PI and brought me back a real generic 50 cal bottle opener, just like you had. So I don't know if it originated there. All the research that I've done and all the stories I've heard are point to, you know, that's where it came out of. Uh, and so all my buddies, they loved it. You know, they'd come over to my house, we'd drink beers, we'd watch UFC or whatever. And they were always like, oh, dude, where can I get one of those? And so um, I was, you know, I was like, well, unless you go to the Philippines, I really don't know, but um, th- that'd be a good place to start. And then a couple of years later, I was like, you know what? Those are cool. I bet I could make, I bet I could make one of those and I bet I could make it better. And so I started working on, I took, I took the one he gave me, I painted it black um, at SEAL Team 3 and Delta Platoon, our platoon logo was the Punisher skull. So I took a little white Punisher skull. I put it on the black um, spray painted 50 cal bottle opener. I took it to work and my buddies freaked out over it. Um, and they were like, dude, I want you to make me five of those for every guy in my family for Christmas. And that's when the light bulb came on. I was like, if these guys who get stuff given to them all the time, like glasses and jackets and shoes, if they're willing to pay me for them, there's something here. I just need to figure out now how to improve it and market it to other groups and other people. And so at that point I was, I asked my wife, Hey, would you help me uh, put these online and see if test the market, see if there's a market for them. And so she helped me put them online. And by that point that there were a couple little small um, like boutique shops that were making these Mm. things, but nobody was like putting the detail and work into them that we were, everybody was just like, um, you know, just cut it, make, making them pretty generic and they were almost, they were all brass. And so I was like, dude, we could really spruce this up quite a bit. And so we just started working on it. We put them online. They started selling immediately. And, um, you know, my, my initial goal was like $500 a month, um, supplemental income. And, uh, you know, I think it was seven months, seven months later, we were doing $22,000 a month out of a one car garage. I was hiring guys from the military to come moonlight and work in my garage after they got off their shift. All the while, my wife was running another business. I was working in that VBSS cell. So I still had a day, a pretty demanding day job. We had two small kids and I mean, we were working our tails off, but it, it was right around that point, you know, that I was like, dude, there's something here. This is going to be bigger than supplemental income. And, uh, we were watching Shark Tank and I was like, you know what? I know that if I could get on that show, if I could get on that show, I was like, we could kill it because I just saw the magic. I saw the growth in this thing. I know that it's a TV show and so much of it is based on the story. Yeah, They, they want a good story. They, they want to get people that watch the story to care about the product and the people behind it. And I was like, I know we could kill it if we got on there, but it was the bullet. And I know that, you know, mainstream TV and media, they're not all about 
you know, that type of stuff. So I, I knew that that would be kind of a difficult thing for us, but nevertheless, I went and I did an open casting call, um, and, uh, they loved it. And, uh, you know, they were like, Hey, we want you to move on to the next round. You have a week to make a video. And, you know, within a couple months, Jen and I were, you know, down in, uh, LA at Sony picture studios, actually pitching to the sharks. And it was wild because I was still in the Navy at that time. Um, I was on terminal leave. And so, um, you know, it was, it was kind of crazy how the timing worked out to go from, you know, the SEAL teams, um, right into a business that's, you know, on the verge of just blowing up. That is amazing. So when you go and you, uh, get that casting call with them, are they all there? So you see, you've met, you've met them before you go on the, the show for the real deal. No, you don't. So the way it works, and it's kind of brutal, man. They they bring out more people than they need. And it's just because, I mean, they need to, they're the ones fronting all the investment, right? So you get it, but they, they, they fly people home that they've flown out to LA that never even get to pitch to the Sharks. That wow. happened to a friend of SF dude. And I really liked his idea and his company, but he didn't get to, he didn't get to pitch. But so me and Jen got out there. The first thing you do is called pre-pitch and you pitch, you do your you, your pitch to a bunch of like executive producers, directors, et cetera, casting members that they think you're going to project well and make good TV. Then they bring you back the next day where you'll have a chance maybe to pitch to the sharks if things don't go too long. Cause like the company in front of us, they went for two hours. Most the average pitch is 45 minutes. So if you get to an eight hour, the end of an eight hour day and too many companies have gone long, they'll just fly you home. Wow. And so, it's a real risk, man, to, you know, but obviously it turned out for us to be a blessing and it went really well. And we got in there and, uh, we were in there for like an hour and 20 minutes and we got to deal with Mark Cuban and Kevin O'Leary. And, you know, it was just a phenomenal experience. Oh, so that's the filming right there. Yeah. Ah, so they're yeah, filming that. Okay. Got it. So some people could and think he, they're actually going to film and then they get flown yeah. home. Ah. Well, here it, it goes another step further because even if you film, even if you get a deal, they tell you they're still, they still might not air your episode. Got to edit. Yeah. <laughs> so it's crazy because what happens is you're as an entrepreneur. Now you're forced into a massive decision. You come home and you say, okay, look, this is what could happen. This, they could air this episode and 12 million people might now see our product. And if we're not ready for it, then we miss a ma major opportunity. However, if we buy a ton of inventory and they don't air the show, um, you know, then we just used and wasted all of our, our resources. So you have to make a real, you know, calculated risk as an entrepreneur. And, and, you know, and we definitely did, we, we made, we took the risk that this was going to air. Um, and even then we weren't even close to being ready for, you know, what, what hit us, but we wow. did everything that we did to be prepared. And more importantly, we were ready to adapt and, you know, solve the problem. How long do you have between the end of that that taping. And then when they, when they air it, in your case, it might be different, you know, depending on a whole bunch of different factors, but for you, how long was it between when you did that taping? And then when they actually aired the episode? For us, it was expedited. It was rushed. I think we had about two and a half months because they were trying to get our episode edited. They were trying to get our deal actually signed because when you actually shake hands on TV, that's not a real deal. Um, a lot of deals you see on TV, like um, they never get through due diligence where, mm -hmm. which is where 
accountants and their lawyers scrutinize your books and everything you said to make sure you weren't lying. Uh, and then, um, and, and that goes the other way too. But, um, we, you know, they wanted to make sure, see if we they could get us on the Veterans Day special. So we had about, I think, two and a half months to get everything ready before the, the, sh- the show aired. So you're just making uh, just 50 cows at that time. So you're just making those as many as you can to get ready in that time frame. Yeah, exactly. You know, we, uh, cause I did to give your audience an idea on a good day, we would make, you know, before shark tank, we were making about 150 bottle breachers. That was a good day. Um, you know, when we woke up the morning after shark tank, um, we had 60,000 units to make. Um, we had 20,000 emails. <laughs> I mean, it was just like, and that was with our website crashing um, within seconds of it airing on the East Coast. Because you, you'll you do an e- airing on the East Coast, then it comes to Central America, and then you got a West Coast airing. The East Coast is always the biggest, but our website crashed after seconds of it being on the uh, airing on the East Coast. And thankfully, I'd learned from the SEAL teams, one is none, two is one. So we made sure that we had a backup website to collect sales in case the website did crash. And so we had our Etsy store up. We had a banner that was already made like, Hey, if the site goes down, throw this banner up on the website, Hey, go over to what, you know, Etsy bottle breacher, um, and, and purchase a gift. So we were still able to collect sales. Um, but some of that military training was already coming in handy. That is good. I, I should have paid more attention during those 20 years in the military because I think I had a similar problem after this last book launch uh, where the, the website got so much traffic that it uh, it crashed or stalled or w- whatever happens at, at that stage. But uh, uh, so I think we switched over to a website that could handle more more traffic, I think. But yeah, uh, yeah I mean, great problems to have, right? Amazing. Right, right. And then is that like you're the first, not the first time, but that is that when you're like, okay, we were all in on this. Let's do it. And, uh, and it's time to expand. It's time to build this thing out, uh, to maximize its potential. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so it was crazy, man. We went from like six employees to 35 employees in two weeks. And, uh, you know, that would, you know, grow and contract depending on the, you know, time of year over, over the last couple of years. But, um, it was, it was cool. One of the things that I found interesting was, um, you know, people always try and keep you in a box like critics. And, uh, and it was funny, man, cause the, the next product we launched was like a coaster with our logo on it. And I remember getting messages on social media being like, Oh, Hey, no, you guys are the bottle opening guys. You can't like throw your name on, you know, other products. You're, you're not a brand. And like just hearing stuff like that. And I've always been the type of guy. I love it when people tell me I can't do something, you know, it makes me want to do it even more. And so that's, but in, in my, in my head, what I really wanted to build was a brand so that it wasn't a one trick pony. We could keep it interesting. I, I could, you know, be creative. Um, and just, you know, because honestly, at the end of the day, if, if I'm not, if my heart isn't in what I'm doing, if there's no mission, then I can only do it for so long. I'm just wired that way. So I had to figure out ways to incorporate mission into what we were doing, whether it was hiring veterans, working with nonprofits, um, you know, working with other veterans that were coming out of the military that wanted to be, be an entrepreneur, you know, just anything like that. I had to find a new mission. And that's something I highly recommend to any veterans that are watching this show is that uh, the mission doesn't have to end when you get out of the uniform. You can find new ways to serve. And if you don't, there's going to be something missing in your soul. And uh, we're just hired, hardwired that way. Oh, man. So how many people do you have working for you now? Yeah, we have... Uh, 
we have about 13 people working for us now. So it's, um, you know, it's, it's smaller than it's smaller than it was. And, um, you know, honestly, that's, that's usually the, the trajectory of about 90, 90% of shark tank companies They you go up, you, you get all that exposure. Um, and then, especially if you have like, uh, unless you have a consumable product where people have to come mm. by, you know, like a, like a coffee, coffee. product, <laughs> yeah. Right. You know, something that people need, uh, you got your black rifle coffee there. That's yeah. right. That's right. Or ammo right. or, uh, you know, sticky right. notes, you know, like all those yeah. sort of things. Mm-hmm. And that, that was one, that's been one of the cool things about entrepreneurship is just learning like, okay, how certain businesses work, when their peak times are, what their weaknesses are, what their strengths are. And, you know, being a gift giving product, you know, it's like, um, you know, it's like, you don't need a, you don't need to buy a bottle breacher every week. You know, you probably could buy, you know, one, you know, or, you know, a couple gifts a year and you're good to go. And so just trying to figure out, okay, where, where are we at in this grand scheme of things? And how, if, if we want to grow this business, like how do, how do we do it? And, um, you know, that's been a real cool education for me. That, and you have a ton of stuff now. Like it's obviously not just bottle breachers. Like I have this frag here. We have the bottle breachers, but on your website, I was just going through it again to see, cause you add things all the time. And, uh, there's so much more on there. It's so cool. It's so cool to see, uh, how you've grown beyond this, how you've moved from the SEAL team. I love when guys get out and then crush it on the outside, especially when they find, you know, that niche, find that passion, combine that passion and that mission and drive forward, which you've done. Uh, and you do a lot of giving back too. Like I saw you have, um, multiple different foundations that you highlight on your, on your website. Uh, and then you also, you're always zipping around. It seems talking to, uh, of its conferences or businesses, but talking about entrepreneurship, talking about transition, talking about resiliency, talking about these things and sharing your lessons. Like you share your lessons, uh, at every opportunity, which is, uh, noticeable from the outside looking in. Uh, and that is, that is very cool. So when you do that, what are some of the, what are some of the top things that you want to impart, whether it's guys transitioning from the military, from professional sports, from, uh, from one job to another, uh, whatever it, it might be. Uh, what are those top things that you focus on uh, when you're passing on those lessons? Yeah. I, um, and I appreciate the opportunity to talk about it. Um, you know, I definitely, one of the biggest things that we get to do is definitely talk about, you know, entrepreneurship and, you know, how a lot of veterans tend to thrive in that field, just because we're, I think we're used to doing more with less um, and we're used to solving problems and thinking outside the box. Um, so I, we, we'd love to do that when we get the opportunity. The other thing I love talking about is, you know, for me, um, faith, you know, my faith is such a big deal to me. It's, you know, it's been the foundation and the bedrock of, um, you know, why I'm still going today, why, why, why I'm still looking for opportunities to try and help and serve and bless other people. Cause I know that this life isn't about me. I think that's a really important lesson, you know, to, when you come to the understanding that this isn't about you, it takes a lot of stress, um, off, off of your plate and it, and it, you know, allows you to devote more time to others, you know, and I think that that's, that's been a, a real great thing for me personally. Um, and, and those are a couple of the things that I like to talk about. And, um, you know, I'm actually, uh, I'm actually, seriously considering running for Congress here in Arizona. Dude. Um, and yeah, I'm going to, I'm really yes. looking at con- continuing my service here um, to this great country. I'm definitely concerned about the direction that this country is headed and I can, I could either keep talking about it or I could do something about it. And so 
stay tuned, uh, stay tuned for that because there's a really good possibility that within the next couple of months, um, we'll be making a public announcement on that. Oh man. Well, I'm going to be, uh, this will probably air right about the same time then in the, uh, in the lineup of podcast. So that should be, that should work out well enough. I have a whole bunch of questions about that, but I'm going to have to have you back on to talk specifically about that. Cause that's a whole another couple hours that we can do right there. But, uh, that you're stepping into that ring or even contemplating stepping into that ring. That's, uh, yeah. that, I mean, that's, that means a lot to me and my family because, uh, to see good guys step in to that realm. Whew, I mean, that's a tough place to go. Um, and you have to, Oh my gosh. So that's amazing. So man, I can't wait to it hear is, more about it. It is. And, uh, I don't, I definitely wouldn't make a decision like that lightly. Um, especially being a family man, but, um, you know, a wise man once said that evil triumphs when good men do nothing. And, uh, I think we need a lot of, uh, courageous, uh, men and women who are fighters who are willing to jump on the sword and in a way be drugged through the mud, you know, and, you know, cause I mean, it's true. Ronald Reagan said it a long time ago that freedom is always one generation away from extinction, you know? And so, um, we, we take it, we take the freedom and the prosperity that we have in this country for granted. And, um, you see what, you see what the result is when we do. And so, um, I want to do my part to make sure that the next generations, you know, have some of the same freedoms and opportunity for prosperity that we grew up with. No, exactly. I talk to my wife about that all the time. It's a, it's a nightly conversation in this house. We have kids, uh, 14, 13 and 10. And so we're always thinking about the country that we're turning over to them and what options and opportunities are they going to have? Do they appreciate everything that's been sacrificed so they could have those freedoms, options, and opportunities from the inception of this country up until today. Um, do they appreciate that? Do they understand that? And that's why I talk a lot about getting into those books. There's so many distractions today. And, uh, that's why I always encourage people to get the hard copy books, dive into those books on history, um, particularly the history of this country, what was been, has been sacrificed, uh, over the years so that we could, I mean, people sacrifice lives, limbs, uh, their, their mental sanity. Um, so much has been sacrificed. They've sacrificed their entire futures and the futures of their families so that we could choose our path. And I thought about that a lot in buds. We're out there hell week, yep. Tuesday night, of hell week, doing pushups in the sand, whatever freezing. Uh, and I thought about, Hey, you know what I'm not doing right now? I'm not waiting for a landing craft, uh, door to crash open into the surf zone and, uh, rush up a beach with no cover or concealment into a hail of machine gun bullets. That's coming down that know people from people that know that I'm coming in an elevated position. I'm not doing that. Right. I'm not doing that in Normandy. I'm not doing that. Iwo Jima. Um, you know what I can do? I can do a couple more pushups here on the beach in California, uh, pursuing my dream because those guys right. died so that I could choose what I wanted to do. And I chose to be a seal or to test myself to see if I could, uh, contribute as a seal. And I thought about that a lot. And that really put things in perspective for me. And I was like, huh, I can do this a little while longer here. This is no big deal compared to what those guys sacrificed for me to be here. Um, so putting things in perspective, I think helps a lot. I love it, man. That's all, that's all good stuff. And it's clearly one of the reasons that you're here today, brother. Oh man. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. You know what? I want to have you back on and talk about this when you announce, let's do that for sure. And then I'm going to see you in like two days. So (laughs) in the mountains of Wyoming here, just down the road. So, uh, man, I gotta, I have two days to get in shape. Uh, to get ready. So, and I'm with the bullet Valentina now, so I'm with UFC champion, you know, she's going to put me in the dirt, I think, cause we're running it around these mountains. It's awesome. like, it's crazy. Two 
full days, I think, of like moving through the mountains to these different positions and taking these shots and then moving to the next one. So it's, yeah. uh, yeah, it's a little different than I anticipated, uh, when I said yes, but of course I'm going to say yes, regardless. I mean, it's SIG, it's going to be awesome. And, uh, and it's yeah. sniper stuff, which I love. So it's, uh, yeah. it's all like my favorite things together in one place, 45 minutes away. So there's, there, <laughs> there's no way I'm saying no to it. Uh, yep. That works out nicely, man. Yeah. Right on brother. Well, Hey dude, thanks for having dude. me on dude. It's it's been an honor and I'm looking forward to seeing you in a couple of days. Awesome, brother. You take care. See you soon. Yep. Welcome to the gear highlight portion of the Danger Close podcast. All right. We're talking to Eli Crane today. So be sure and check out bottlebreacher.com. Check out all the cool stuff they have on there. Uh, if you don't have a grenade or a 50 cal to open your beer with, you are definitely wrong. So check all that stuff out. It's awesome. Veteran owned and operated business. And as you can tell, I'm a fan. And what else do I have here? So Tidex holsters, and that is T-Y-D-E-X underscore holsters on Instagram there. And look at this. So I'll start with this. Look what they made. They, this is an EDC tray that they made, put the books in there and put some pages from the book there in a backdrop, but so cool, so thoughtful. Tidex holsters, thank you so much. And not only did they do that with an EDC tray, they did that for this holster and they've been paying attention because it's for the SIG P365. And if you followed me for a while on Instagram or watch this podcast, you know what a fan I am of this pistol. So look what they did. They customized it, put the books on there. I mean, it is so cool. So uh, Tidex holsters, Thank you guys so much. Awesome. And uh, yeah, just beyond cool. And you were also paying attention to the books because on the cover of the latest novel, The Devil's Hand, there is this pistol right here, the P320, uh, not X-Carry, because I want to say X-Carry, X-Compact. That's tough. They don't make the X-Carry anymore, although it's a sweet pistol. If you have one, hold on to it. Uh, this thing right here, the x compact with the Romeo one pro. And, uh, that made its way onto the cover of the latest novel and Tidex holsters put the cross Tomahawk logo right there on this holster. So, uh, super cool. Thank you guys so much. Sincerely appreciate it. Uh, very thoughtful. And not only did they do that with the pistol, with the pistol and the holster, they did that another EDC tray with the cross Tomahawks. Absolutely love it. So Tidex Holsters, thank you so much. Thank you so much to SIG uh, for everything that you do. And I will see you next time on the gear highlight portion of Danger Close. Thank you for tuning in to the Danger Close podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Six Sour. If you like what you heard, be sure and leave a five-star rating and review wherever you get your podcasts, Spotify, Apple, YouTube. Help us beat some of those big tech algorithms. And remember, you can find Eli Crane at Eli Crane, that's E-L-I-C-R-A-N-E underscore CEO on the social channels and also at Bottle Breacher. And you can follow me at, at Jack Carr USA or check out the website, officialjackcar.com. There's also a podcast Instagram, which is at Danger Close Podcast. So you can go back and easily scroll through guests to find one that might jump out at you to then listen to or watch. So thank you so much for tuning in. Stay safe. Be strong. Keep fighting.
And a special thank you to Schnee's. I've been using Schnee's boots for over a decade now. As you can tell, for these ones right here, they're just my favorites. These are the granites. I think every hunter should have a pair of these in their quiver. But these guys right here, uh, these are the ones that I wear when I'm going into the backcountry and hope to come out heavier than when I went in. So uh, right here, granites, awesome boot. Absolutely love these. You can see these have been worn quite a bit. These are just some of my other favorites right here. So these are the Hunter 2s. These are, I would wear these all day, every day, if I, if I could, but, uh, um, amazing boot, love everything they have going on over there at Schnee's. So be sure to check them out. I have some new boots now. I think I have, uh, 10 pair right now. My wife has a pair. Uh, and then I just got a couple new pairs and right here, these are the bear tooth. I'm one of these for a while. So super excited about trying out the bear tooths. That'll happen this summer and fall. And then the Kestrels right here. So those are a couple new pairs that I have in the arsenal that I'm looking forward to checking out here soon. So if you haven't heard of Schnee's, check them out online, check out their story, check out their Instagram, the boots they make in an Italian boot factory. So those are handmade in Italy. The only place you can get them is through Schnee's directly to you. So you're getting more boot for your money and uh, every part of these things. Uh, you can just tell how much care and how much time, energy, and effort goes into these boots right here. And what's also great about Schnee's is that you can go visit them in Bozeman, or you can give them a call and tell them about uh, where you're going to hunt, what you're doing, and uh, they can make some recommendations for you right there on the phone. So Schnee's, thank you so much. And I'm going to read this part because you get 10% off. Uh, so I don't want to mess this part up. When you shop at Schnee's, and that is S-C-H-N-E-E-S.com, make sure you use the promo code JACK21, J-A-C-K-2-1. When you do, you'll save 10% off your pair of Schnee's boots and logo wear. These handmade hunting boots usually sell out fast, so grab your pair today. Take care of your feet. Don't compromise. Upgrade to Schnee's. Again, that's Schnee's, S-C-H-N-E-E-S. Dot com and promo code Jack21. In case you missed it, on a recent episode of Danger Close, an Ironclad original, Jack Carr sat down with former presidential candidate Tulsi Gabbard. Set aside all the labels, mm. you know, oh, well, because I've been getting asked this a lot, like, well, are you left or are you right? Are you progressive or are you conservative? What are box you... do you fit in? Exactly, Which box do you check? Completely. Are you an enemy or <laughs> right, right. An How, uh, Like, what filter should I use when I'm looking at you? And, like, I've always been an independent-minded person. Mm. Always. Be sure to check out the full interview wherever you get your podcasts. 